Please turn with me to the first chapter of Luke, and uh, I'll tell you why we're looking at the first chapter of Luke this morning. We've just come through Advent, and uh, we should be, I I suppose, looking at other things, Uh, perhaps uh, looking more precisely at the nations. Epiphany is on Thursday, January the 6th, it's the the festival and the annual cycle of festivals in the life of the church that celebrates the presentation of Jesus as the Savior, not just of a particular nation, but as the Savior of the world. So, you know, perhaps we should be looking at the nations and thinking about the nations and should be looking around and should recognize that the nations are right here. When the first of the year rolls around, there's an increased, and I love this, there's an increased number of Dutch among us. I love it. I love it. You'll have to kind of snoop around and and understand why I say that. But the nations are here. Well, let me tell you why we're looking at Luke 1. We're looking at Luke 1, frankly, because I started a new Bible reading plan this last week, and I got a head start on it because I always fall behind. And so I thought I'd use the last few days of the old year to get started on the new Bible reading plan, and I'm reading in Luke. And frankly, I was, I was stopped in my tracks as I read this chapter and reflected upon it. And so what you're getting this morning is just some of my reflections upon my own Bible reading from my own devotional time. So look with me at, and by the way, I do recommend a Bible reading plan. I think it's a very good idea to try to read through the Bible annually, annually. I'm nobody's hero when it comes to this. I just think it's a good idea. Luke chapter 1, let me have you look at verses 5 and following, and then verse 57 and following. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And then at verse 57, and this is in the neighborhood of nine months later. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. 
But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, please do help us by your spirit to reflect upon it, think about it, enjoy it, marvel at it, press it home, press it into our hearts. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a, uh, a story, just learned of this story, so I can't, I can't cite chapter and verse as it were. I can't give you the location of it, but I believe it's true. Certainly consistent with what I know about C.S. Lewis. Story told about C.S. Lewis that he was late for a gathering of uh, some of his friends, maybe the Inklings, you know that group of folks that used to meet together and, and read books and discuss things. They were Christians, and on this particular occasion, they... They were talking about what it is that makes Christianity different from everything else. What is it that makes Christianity different from all of the other religions or philosophies or worldviews? What is it that's different about Christianity? And they were all offering their opinions and having some conversation. Lewis walked in late, learned what it was they were talking about, and he said, well, that's simple. That's easy. What is it that's different about Christianity? Grace. Five letters, one word, grace. That's what differentiates, distinguishes Christianity from all other religions, all other systems of thought, philosophies, spiritualities, grace. As we look at this passage this morning, I want to extract three things, three pegs for you to hang this text Upon. The first of them is this. What you have in this passage is what uh, I'd like to call an eruption of grace. An eruption of grace. And then, second, what you see in this passage is a window into a culture of grace, a keyhole, a peephole into a culture of grace. And what I'd like to do last is just paint a few pictures of grace. Okay, so an eruption of grace first, and then a culture of grace, and then pictures of grace. What do I mean by an eruption of grace? Well, let me spell it for you. The word is I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N. Maybe you've never heard of it before. You've never thought about it before. An eruption, E-R-U-P-T-I-O-N, eruption is something that breaks out like a volcano, something that explodes out of something. But an eruption is a breaking in. It's a breaking in of something. And when that thing breaks in, it completely alters everything. It changes everything. It reorders everything. In fact, it challenges, and we'll come to this in the second point, it, ch- it challenges All of the assumptions, all of the assumptions that people carry around with them. And that's what you have in these first few verses of Luke chapter 1. 
you have, if you will, a kind of, a, a kind of an eruption, a breaking in of grace. Why do I say that? Well, I say it for a couple of reasons. Let me point out just these two things. Generally, Zechariah and Elizabeth are a perfect picture of this. A perfect picture of an eruption of grace, a breaking in of grace, and the disruption that happens when there is an eruption of grace. It's in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. The priests would serve in the temple, and serving in the temple, they would be serving the people of God, and there were 24 divisions. And so each of these divisions had... Uh, a rotation twice a year, and it was Zechariah's turn, one of his two times in the year to go up to Jerusalem when they had a major feast, the three major feasts of Passover and first fruits and final harvest. All of the priests would go up. And so Zechariah goes up as a, as a priest in his particular division, goes up to Jerusalem, and Zechariah has this wife. He has a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name is Elizabeth. And then verse 6 and 7. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were perfect. That's what Luke wants to tell us, isn't it? They were perfect, sinless, without flaw or fault. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Then there's this next verse, this seventh verse, where Luke writes, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Because Elizabeth was barren. Now let me just tell you, whether Jew or Gentile, if you're reading these words of Luke, these three verses, particularly the last two, verses 6 and 7, make an assault upon everything you think about the way life works, the way life is. Let me give you a definition of grace, since we're talking about grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is undeserved kindness. Grace is unearned blessing. Grace is getting what you don't deserve on the one hand and not getting what you do deserve on the other hand. That's what grace is. Grace is getting what you don't deserve on the one hand and not getting what you do deserve on the other hand. Keep that in mind and look at these verses and understand that if you're living in Luke's day and you read those verses, these verses create a dissonance, a cognitive dissonance for you because the prevailing notion of the day, whether among Jew or Gentile, was that life worked in exactly the reverse of what I've just described. You get what you deserve and you don't get what you don't deserve. And anybody who would have read these verses, I want to suggest to you, anybody who would have read these verses upon learning that Elizabeth was barren, would have asked this question. How did she sin? How did she sin? She's barren. She has no children. Children were a sign of the favor of God. 
Children were a sign of the kindness of God. Children were a sign of the blessing of God, an indication of the blessing of God. Here she is, along with her husband, described as righteous people who walk blamelessly keeping the statutes of the Lord. The next thing you would expect to hear is they had 19 children. That's what you would have expected to hear. Because in the universe of the day, it was a tit-for-tat kind of a world. It was a quid pro quo kind of a world. You do this, you get that. You get what you deserve, and you don't get what you don't deserve. But you see how jarring this is? Here is a woman who is described as righteous and who is childless. And what Luke is doing in these opening sentences of his gospel is making an assault upon the prevailing notions, the notions that governed how people thought about the way life worked. He's saying right out of the chute, when you come in contact with Christianity, when you come in contact with the gospel, when you come in contact with the kingdom of God, when you come in contact with the good news, you're coming into contact with something that is different. It is unique, completely different from the way people think about things. Jesus got the same kind of question in his ministry. You remember John 9, John 9, man born blind? That's how you can remember that, John 9. Remember the man who was born blind? He, he couldn't see. And what did, there were some people talking about that. What did they ask? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? You see? What you put out comes back to you. You put out good stuff, good stuff comes back. You get what you deserve. If you don't put out bad stuff, bad stuff won't come back to you. You see? Luke is making an assault upon the way people thought about how life worked. Grace is getting what you don't deserve on the one hand and not getting what you do deserve on the other hand. He's creating intentionally a dissonance and Folks, I just want to encourage you to think about this and not let this slip away and reflect upon the fact that this sort of an idea, this kind of a calculus for life, it's really buried deep in our hearts. It's buried deep in our souls. Right? I was in traffic this last week. Someone cut me off again. I love having more Dutch among us. I just don't like having more cars around here. (laughs) Somebody cut me off again. And what was my first, my first response was a response, not just of frustration, it was a response of retribution. You know, deep in my heart, there is this inclination to want paybacks for people who wrong me. Is that how God has dealt with me? Is that how God has responded to me? You see, the gospel stands in stark contrast to this. So you look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, and you see even in this description of Elizabeth that there's something up here. There's something going on. Is she sinless? Of course not. 
What Luke is doing really is not drawing attention to her. He is drawing attention as this story unfolds. He is drawing attention to God himself and how different this God is. And then here's the second thing. The second thing that you see in this is the naming of Zechariah's son. Now look, we pick names because we like them, right? That's why we pick names. We, we like our three daughters' names. We picked them because we liked them. In one case, there was a connection to a family member. It's a reason for picking a name. That's what everybody expects in this passage. They expect for this son who is born to be connected to his father, to Zechariah. But he gets a name that is completely unique and different in the family. They ask about it. Zechariah, if you read farther in this passage, Zechariah ends up mute and deaf. The word that's translated unable to speak or mute really covers both maladies, an inability to speak and an inability to hear. And that's why when John is born, the people make signs to him. Did you catch that in the text? They make signs to him. Why? Because he couldn't hear probably. Didn't have hearing aids, couldn't hear. So they made signs to him, he couldn't speak, so what does he do when they ask what the name of the child is? He, he takes a slate, and it was a piece of wood that would have been covered with a kind of wax, and he would have taken a stylus, and he would have written this name, John, on this, on this slate. And the people wondered at this, and they're mystified at this. Well, why did he write the name John? Well, he wrote the name John because God, through the angel, had commanded him to give this child the name John. And what's the significance of that? Well, it's tremendously significant. In fact, if you take both of these names, Zechariah and John, and you sort of marry them There's something wonderful and beautiful and powerful about these two names as they are wed on the day of this child's birth. Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. And John comes from the Hebrew name Yahanan. Yahanan, Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. Now look, think about this personally and think about it globally. Think about John and Elizabeth, these two old people. They've given up hope. Think about this. This is a marvelous picture of the gospel. This is a marvelous picture of what happens when there is an eruption of grace, when grace penetrates something, permeates something, explodes into something, and begins to alter everything. They are old. They are incapable. They are another Abraham and Sarah. She's past childbearing years. She's past the years when one can conceive. And Zechariah's name means God remembers. Elizabeth lived with a picture 
of God remembering her husband. You wonder, don't you, how many times did Zechariah and Elizabeth have to endure the kinds of questions that perhaps some of you have had to endure, the kinds of questions that David perhaps had to endure. David, who said in one of the Psalms, as he reflected, wrote this hymn reflecting upon what people were saying of him, there is no help for him in God. God has abandoned him. God has left him alone. God has forgotten him. How many times might Zechariah and Elizabeth have had to answer questions or endure glances or entertain the suspicions of people who believed that because Elizabeth had sinned, she had no children and God had forgotten them, but Elizabeth lived with God remembers. And then when God speaks and makes this promise to Elizabeth, what name is given to this child? See, the child, it's not about the child. When we name our kids, it's about the kid. I'll get myself in trouble here. Several years ago, two, three, four years ago, Barb and I were opening Christmas cards, and I don't know when this sort of shift happened, but somewhere along the way, families started sending pictures of their kids rather than sending cards about the kid. Have you noticed that? Now, look, see, I'm getting myself in trouble. It's okay. It's okay. We give names to kids because of them. They gave this name to him because of God. Yahweh is gracious. And after all of these years, the text tells us, God heard Zechariah's prayer. Try to imagine this. Here's a priest. He has official duties. He's got to go into the temple. He's got to offer incense. He has to make prayers for the whole of the nation. But before he's finished, before he leaves, it's his one shot, right? Here I am in the temple, not in the Holy of Holies, but in the holy place, just outside the Holy of Holies. It's as close as I'm probably ever going to get to the place where God is. And he's got to be thinking, this is my one shot. Would you please give us a son? And God remembers Zechariah and Elizabeth. And God answers graciously, giving them a son. Well, if I could hit the pause button right now, I'd spend the next 15 or 20 minutes going around the room in the context of worship, in the context of God's people, and I'd ask each one of us, what is the thing in your heart for which you most deeply long? And I would say to you, God remembers, and God is gracious, and the day will come. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the final outcome of the gospel. This is what my son-in-law preached about last week. The day will come when the deepest longing of your soul will be within your grasp and in your grasp. God remembers and God is gracious. Zechariah and Elizabeth give this name to this boy. God is gracious. He remembered. He heard. And he answered. 
But then think about it more globally. This is where I got caught up in the drama this last week. Thinking about the fact that it has been 400 years since God has been heard from. Four centuries since Malachi, since the final word of prophecy was uttered. Over the span of that 400 years, there have been no miracles. There has been no tangible, visible demonstration, unique demonstrations or displays of God's power in the midst of the nation. There has been no prophetic word. There has been no one who has risen up like Elijah and who has said to the nation, thus saith the Lord, there has been silence. For 400 years. And don't you love this picture? Here's the picture that you get in Luke chapter 1. When the silence comes to an end, the words that are spoken in the names of the prophet and his son, the words that are spoken, the Lord remembers and the Lord is gracious. Now that leads to the second thing. This is just, again, an eruption of grace. God speaking into a silent place. God speaking into silent lives. God intruding himself into places of destitution and hopelessness and helplessness. That's grace. And let me just suggest to you that this is not a New Testament thing. Please, may I labor to disabuse you of the notion that the Old Testament is a legal thing and the New Testament is a gracious thing. Let me suggest this illustration to you. Think of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Think of his coming as prophet, priest, and king, and ultimately as victorious warrior, the things that we looked at in Advent. Think of all of those things woven together, but hidden by scaffolding. Have you ever seen a building, a building of real beauty, an architectural masterpiece that's being redone, repointed, cleaned up, restored, and it's hidden by scaffolding, and you can't see what's behind it, but it's there behind the scaffolding? And then they take the scaffolding down, and what previously had been hidden is now put on display for all to see and marvel at and wonder at. That's exactly what the gospel is, folks. Please don't think of the gospel as a New Testament thing in stark contrast to the Old Testament, which is law. But think of the Old Testament as centuries and centuries and centuries of the construction of a glorious, beautiful cathedral hidden by scaffolding as it is constructed. And then when the angels begin their work, when the angel first comes to John and then comes to Mary, And then on the day of the birth of Jesus, explode throughout the sky. What is happening is the scaffolding is coming down. And the glory of everything that God had been constructing across all of those centuries is beginning to be revealed. There is a culture of grace in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures. 
a culture of grace. What is a culture? There are lots of things that make up a culture, but here's here's something that is a part of what a culture is. A culture involves habits of thinking and ways of behaving, ways of thinking about things and ways of doing things that are so deeply woven into the fabric of who we are that we don't even talk about them. We just assume them, right? My kids are all gone, so I can tell this funny story on them. We went out for lunch. They were 5, 7, and 10. We went out for lunch. We went to an olive garden. I happen to remember this detail. It was horrendous. Because here we are, a couple of, a couple of righteous, blameless people walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, seeking to instruct our children in proper public behavior. And our kids are lying all over the table. They've got arms over chairs, legs on top of feet, shoes off. And Barb and I are what? Furious. Why? Because there are certain ways of thinking and certain ways of behaving that are assumed, right? It's a part of the fabric of how you live. It's in the culture. You do what you're supposed to do and you don't do what you're not supposed to do. Cultural habits. Grace is woven into the Old Testament like a cultural habit. Used this illustration with some folks this last week. Imagine three groups of people. A bunch of guys from North America, a bunch of guys from Europe or South Africa or South America, and a bunch of guys from Australia. And you say, let's have a football game. And what do you get? You get the American guys saying, that ball's round, we can't use that. You get the Australian guys saying, that ball's too skinny, you've got to have a big plump one. They start to play, and the one group says, you can't do that. The other group says, neither of you can do that. They're all playing football. Different rules, right? North American football, European soccer, and Australian rugby. Or whatever it is they call it down there. You see, there are things that get woven into the fabric of how we think and the ways that we behave. And that makes up a culture. And there is a culture of grace in the scriptures. Right? The name, John, Yahanan, God is gracious. He is gracious. Now think about this. I've I've asked you to think about this before, but I want you to think about it again. Does the Father become gracious towards you because of the death of the Son? Or does the Son die because the Father is gracious towards you? Do the Father and the Son commission the Holy Spirit to bring all of the blessings of the finished work of Christ 
to you? Do they make that determination because Christ has died? Or is it the case that Father and Son and Holy Spirit, the one true God, three persons in the one true God, are fundamentally and essentially gracious? And so the Father commissions the Son, and the Son comes to live and die and be raised, and the Spirit is given as expressions. As expressions, powerful expressions of who and what God is. Heard someone say this last week grace is not a thing. Grace is not a thing that God puts on, it's not like a suit of clothes. George Harrison referred to his time with the Beatles as a time with a particular suit of clothes. He wore a different suit before the Beatles. He wore a different suit after the Beatles. It was just a suit of clothes. He was a Beatle for a while. God is not gracious for a while. Yahweh is gracious. There is a culture of grace woven throughout the scriptures. And let me give you some examples. Where in the world would you go? Where could you possibly go? Any place, any place in the Old Testament to see illustrations and evidences of the fact that God is gracious. Think about the creation. Oh, man. Wish I had another half hour. Think about the creation Think about the fact that the eternal God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit live in... Per this is old English kinds of stuff. This is old language, but it's wonderful language. The Father and the Son and the Spirit in the language of our forebears, our forefathers, lived in perfect felicity. Meaning perfect happiness, perfect joy, perfect contentment, Perfect delight, the Father loving and delighting in the Son, the Son loving and delighting in the Father, the Father and the Son loving and delighting in the Spirit, the Spirit loving and delighting in the Father and the Son. Perfect intimacy and pure delight. And what does God do in the creation? He creates a world in which image bearers may revel in that joy. That's why he creates the world. He creates the world so that he might be glorified in the joy which he diffuses upon his creatures. And it's all undeserved. It's all freely given. It's all grace. What happens after the fall? You've heard this, I'm sure, before, if you haven't heard it here, you've heard it someplace else, I'm sure. What is the first thing that God does? Not the first thing that he says. We all know what the first thing is that he says. It's Genesis 3.15 where he makes a promise that a warrior is going to come who will exterminate and extinguish the evil one and all of the evil that permeates the whole of God's realm. He'll eradicate it. It's a word of hope. But the first thing that he does is clothe the nakedness of the man and the woman. That's the first thing he does. He doesn't exterminate them. He doesn't destroy them. He manifests his grace by clothing them when they couldn't clothe themselves. 
by hiding their guilt and their shame when they were powerless to eradicate their guilt and shame from themselves. Think even about what we've read this morning as we prayed through the Ten Commandments. We prayed through those Ten Commandments. Do you hear? Did you hear? Do you hear? The thing that God says before he gives the law. I am the Lord your God who what? Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of a house of bondage. I brought you up. And before bringing them up, in chapter 19, he says he bore them up on eagles' wings. He bore them to himself. And before that, if you go back to Exodus, Moses is commissioned by God to go into Egypt to announce his redemption. And why does that redemption come? Because Zechariah. Because the Lord remembers. He remembers his promise to Abram and to Isaac and to Jacob. He remembers his people. He hears their cries in the midst of their suffering. He hears, he remembers, and he erupts into their circumstances to lead them out to himself and then to give him his law. Always remember this. God is a redeemer before he is a lawgiver. God is a rescuer before he is a lawgiver. That's a thing that gets twisted around and turned upside down, doesn't it? It gets turned upside down in our own thinking. Again, it's so deeply pressed into the fabric of our existence that we, we start doing life in a contrary way. We do in order to receive rather than doing because we've received. The latter of those things is the gospel. The latter of those things is grace. The latter of those things is the Old Testament. And then think about any number of passages in the New Testament, the one that was preached on last week, Luke chapter 14. I must tell you, I've been thinking about the question that Brenda asked us last week. I've been thinking about it all week. What do I think of when I think of the kingdom of God? What do I think of? Do I think party? Do I think banquet? Do I think feast? And do I think that God so loves, so loves to have his table full, that he will go out to the highways and the byways. He will go out to compel those who have nothing to come to his table that they might have everything. That's Luke 14. And right on the heels of Luke 14 is Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, the son who is profligate, the son who wastes his inheritance on cheap wine and cheap women, and the son who is welcomed back and seated in his position of privilege and blessing at the Father's table. Look, folks, that is so contrary to the way we tend to think that life works. But that's what grace is. There's a culture of it in the Old Testament. 
hidden by some scaffolding to be sure, but as the scaffolding begins to come down, we begin to see how marvelous this grace really is. And the place, of course, where this grace is most clearly and beautifully seen is at the cross, isn't it? Where someone gets what he doesn't deserve so that I too can get what I don't deserve. That is grace. That is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so here's the invitation. Whether you've heard this sort of thing a thousand times before or perhaps are hearing it for the first time, let me just quote you Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, everyone who thirsts, where is it parched in your soul? Where is it parched in your heart? Where are you thirsty in your soul? Here's the invitation. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come. Come by wine, by milk, by bread, without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money on what cannot satisfy? Come to me and eat and your soul will be satisfied and you will live. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for pushing yourself into Zechariah and Elizabeth's lives. Thank you for pushing yourself into my life and into the lives of so many in this room. Lord, I would ask you that you would show your grace yet again to those who maybe have never seen it. Hear these prayers that we all might taste and see and know that you are supremely good. In Jesus' name, amen.